Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drug abuse, suicide, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. On November 6, 2000, 24-year-old Kristen Rossum scattered rose petals on the bed she shared with her husband, 26-year-old Greg DeVillers. Then she propped up one of their wedding photos on the nightstand. It was oh so romantic. Except for the fact that her husband lay in the bed comatose and dying. Kristen had given him a fatal dose of fentanyl, an extremely potent drug and one she expected would go undetected in an autopsy. She waited by the bed, making sure the drug had time to enter her husband's bloodstream. She was patient. Only when his body was cold to the touch did she walk into the kitchen, work up some fake tears, and call 911. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we discussed how Kristen Rossum went from straight-A student to meth-addicted dropout. Then we saw her clean up her act thanks to the help of her boyfriend and eventual husband, Greg DeVillers, only to then start cheating on him with her boss, Michael Robertson. This week, we'll look at how Kristen poisoned Greg and tried to pass the crime off as a dramatic suicide. We'll follow along as authorities piece together the truth, leading to Kristen's eventual arrest and trial. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries.
That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On Friday, November 3rd, 2000, 24-year-old Kristen Rossum went to dinner with her husband, Greg, and her parents, Ralph and Constance. They were out celebrating the young couple's birthdays. Kristen had just turned 24, and Greg would turn 27 later that month. But this year, Kristen and Greg weren't in the mood to celebrate. Greg spoke louder than normal, drawing attention to their table as he ranted about a disappointing co-worker. Ralph and Constance shifted uncomfortably in their seats. They weren't sure what had gotten into their son-in-law. Constance excused herself and asked Kristen to join her in the ladies' room, where she pushed Kristen to explain what was going on. Kristen didn't want to tell her mom the real reason for Greg's sour mood, that he was mad at her for using meth again and for cheating on him. Ashamed, Kristen simply said that she and Greg were fighting about their relationship. Constance suggested Kristen stay with them overnight to get some space. But Kristen insisted she and Greg needed to work things out. Her mother never imagined that working things out would mean murder. That night, Kristen and Greg went to bed without saying much to each other. But as she laid awake under the covers, Kristen thought about his threat. Greg had demanded she stop using drugs and call off her affair with her boss, Michael Robertson. If she didn't, he'd inform her superiors. Kristen knew that if San Diego County officials found out one of their toxicologists was a meth user and sleeping with her manager, her career was over. She was trapped. No matter which choice she made, she was going to lose. It wasn't fair. Why was she the one who had to give up the things she loved? Kristen had resented Greg for a while, but now that resentment threatened to boil over into rage. She wasn't his. He couldn't tell her what to do. The next night, Kristen tried to make Greg see her side of things, but he only grew more resolute. He thought Kristen's job was a bad influence on her. He didn't think she could change while in that working environment. He told her to quit her job altogether. That way, she wouldn't be tempted by the drugs in the office, and she wouldn't see Michael anymore. Kristen couldn't believe him. It was one thing to say she should end her affair and stop using meth. Now he wanted her to give up her career? Later in bed, she tossed and turned, furious. She ran through all her gripes against him. He was boring, judgmental, controlling. Plus, she never really wanted to marry him in the first place. Now here he was, trying to take away the best parts of her life. Well, she wouldn't let him. Before we continue with Kristen's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Psychiatrist Alison Hamilton studied female meth users who perpetrated violence. Her research showed that methamphetamine use often leads to heightened aggression, impulsivity, paranoia, and impaired decision-making. And those symptoms only become worse during the coming down stage. Kristen's brain chemistry was permanently altered by her past drug use. And on top of that, she was likely in the throes of withdrawal. 
As soon as Greg had confronted her three days earlier, she'd stopped cold turkey. Greg didn't know it, but his ultimatum couldn't have come at a worse time. Kristen was incapable of seeing her situation objectively. All Kristen understood was that her life was in jeopardy and she needed to protect herself at all costs. Greg was a threat that needed to be handled. The next morning, Sunday, November 5th, Kristen woke up with a plan. While Greg slept off his hangover, she went to her workplace, the medical examiner's office. She walked into the room where they stored all the drugs collected from the county's death scenes. There, on the shelf, she found what she was looking for. Fentanyl, an opioid that's 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine. She grabbed it and put it in her purse. Then she headed home, ready to put her plan into motion. Either late Sunday night or early Monday morning, Kristen apparently drugged Greg with oxycodone, an opioid pain medication she had on hand. Not enough to cause any serious damage, just enough to knock him out. He drifted in and out of consciousness throughout the night, drowsy and incoherent. Around 8 a.m. on Monday, November 6th, Kristen called in sick for Greg at his work so that no one would come looking for him. Then she went to work. She was desperate to see Michael, but when she got to his office, he confronted her. The day before, he had searched her desk, concerned about her recent erratic behavior. She'd seemed off her game all week, jittery and nervous. To his surprise and disappointment, he'd found a bag of meth in her desk drawer. The jitters he'd noticed were because she'd been high. He flushed the drugs down the toilet to protect her, but now he wanted answers. Kristen broke down in tears, begging for forgiveness. Michael sensed co-workers watching them through his glass door, so he told Kristen they would discuss it more once they were out of the office. Whether she also confessed to Michael what she had done to Greg and what she planned on doing next is unknown. The rest of the morning, she went back and forth between the office and her apartment 15 minutes away. She told coworkers she was checking on Greg, who was under the weather. During one of those runs, Kristen stopped at a supermarket. There, she bought a bottle of nighttime cold medicine, four cans of soup, a Bic cigarette lighter, and a single rose. All this time, Greg lay in bed at home, drugged and asleep, too medicated to move or think straight in the event he woke up. Kristen returned to work after lunch. Then she left for the last time at 2.30. Minutes later, Michael also left. For the next two hours or so, Michael's whereabouts are unaccounted for. Later, he claimed he and Kristen were together, talking about her drug use. He'd already decided he wouldn't report her. But now, it wasn't just her career at risk, it was his. Michael was in jeopardy of losing his job, not just because of their affair, but because he'd decided to help her conceal her drug use. We still don't know whether Kristen told Michael about her plan to poison Greg, or if she acted completely on her own. Either way, 
Kristen returned to her apartment on Monday evening, determined to enact the final stage of her plan. She couldn't let Greg make good on his threat. With her husband still lying in bed, she drugged him with clonazepam, a date rape drug that in high doses makes someone comatose. And then she gave him a lethal dose of fentanyl. The fentanyl alone was enough to kill Greg, but the other two drugs were an essential part of her cover-up. As a county toxicologist, Kristen was familiar with suicides. Clonazepam and oxycodone were both often found in suicide victims, and they would show up on standard tests. That would be enough to rule his death an overdose. No one would even think of looking for fentanyl, which was a rarer drug that required specialized testing. Now all she needed to do was stage the scene. Kristen grabbed the rose that she had bought from the supermarket and threw back the covers. She scattered the rose petals across Greg's body, making it appear that he had killed himself in a final romantic gesture. Then she found a happy photo from their wedding day and placed it under his pillow. By now, Greg wasn't breathing. Kristen put her hand to his forehead. It was cold. In all likelihood, he was already dead. But she waited another half hour just to be safe. Around 9.20 Monday night, Kristen picked up the phone and dialed 911. Through sobs, she told the emergency operator that her husband was unconscious and not breathing. The dispatcher told Kristen to pull Greg off the bed and onto the floor to administer CPR. Kristen panicked. In her flustered state, she thought the whole scene she had just carefully laid out would be ruined. She pulled her husband off the bed, but instead of following the CPR instructions, she just adjusted the scene. She swiped the rose petals from the mattress and scattered them over Greg's body on the floor. Then she grabbed the wedding photo and propped it up against the dresser next to his head. Minutes later, first responders arrived. As they tried to resuscitate Greg, police swept the apartment for signs of what happened. These were officers who worked for the University of California, San Diego, since the building Kristen and Greg lived in was owned by the school. They found no suicide note and no signs of drug use, no syringes or empty pill containers anywhere. Kristen cried the whole time, insisting that Greg overdosed on a mixture of cough syrup, clonazepam, and oxycodone. She told officers that he'd taken the drugs to help him sleep the night before. The paramedics rushed Greg to the hospital, and a campus police officer drove Kristen behind them. Once she got to the waiting room, Kristen called Michael. He arrived 15 minutes later. He took a seat next to Kristen, holding her hand and comforting her. They were only together in the lobby for a few minutes before a social worker came to deliver the bad news. Greg was dead. As the social worker brought her to see Greg's body, Kristen wailed, and when she saw him dead on the bed, she laid her head on his chest, and then, so quietly, the social worker almost didn't hear it, she whispered, I'm sorry. But the night wasn't over just yet. 
Michael took her home, where UCSD Detective Sergeant Bob Jones greeted her at her door. He asked Michael to wait outside as he interviewed Kristen about what happened. She told her carefully fabricated story. She and Greg had been fighting over the weekend. He took some of her old prescriptions to help him sleep on Sunday and slept all through Monday. She came to check on him throughout the day and he had seemed fine each time. After work, she ran errands and then came home to take a long bath. Then, only as she was about to get into bed, did she realize his body was cold. That was when she called 911. Like the officers who were first on the scene, Jones saw no reason to doubt Kristen. So when Kristen's dad arrived, Jones allowed Kristen to go with him to Claremont. But while Detective Jones initially believed Kristen's story, others found it hard to swallow. Jerome DeVillers, Greg's brother, was one of those people. From the moment he heard about his brother's death, he sensed something was wrong. He knew Kristen well. After all, he had lived with her and Greg when they first met, and he knew his brother. Greg had never done drugs and would have no idea where to get them. But Kristen had the means and the experience. Jerome didn't buy her story, and he was determined to find out what really happened. Up next, Kristen desperately tries to maintain her cover. Listeners, here's a new show I can't wait for you to check out. When it comes to love, every story is unique. Some play out like fairy tales, seemingly meant to be. Others defy the odds to achieve happily ever after. In Our Love Story, the newest Spotify original from Parcast, you'll discover the many pathways to love, as told by the actual couples who found them. Every Tuesday, Our Love Story celebrates the ups, downs, and pivotal moments that turn complete strangers into perfect pairs. Each episode offers an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance, with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Whether it's a chance encounter, a former friendship, or even a former enemy, our love story proves that love can begin and blossom in the most unexpected ways. Follow Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Now, back to the story. On November 6, 2000, 24-year-old toxicologist Kristen Rossum poisoned her husband, 26-year-old Greg DeVillers. She drugged him with oxycodone, clonazepam, and fentanyl, a lethal mix. But as news of his purported suicide spread, some people found it too far-fetched to believe, including Greg's brother, Jerome. He wasn't the only one. UCSD Detective Sergeant Bob Jones initially believed Kristen's story, but the more he thought about it, the more questions he had. 
Why did she dial 911 from the kitchen phone when there was a phone by the bed? Why the rose petals on the floor? And why weren't there any empty drug containers? Unsatisfied with his own search from the night before, Jones got permission from Kristen to search her apartment again on Tuesday, November 7th. Meanwhile, Kristen met with Greg's family to discuss what would happen next. Everyone agreed cremation was the way to go. But Kristen wanted it done in the next few days. Jerome didn't understand the rush. He also thought it was odd that she was in a hurry to go back to the apartment where her husband had just died. His suspicions were too strong to keep to himself. So on November 8th, he went to the San Diego Police Department. He told Detective Lori Agnew that he didn't think Greg's death was a suicide and that he suspected Kristen was having an affair. He also mentioned another red flag. Kristen's office was handling the death, which was a blatant conflict of interest. Detective Agnew promised she would look into it. As Agnew made some preliminary calls, Kristen made one of her own. She spoke with the North County Cremation Service and arranged for Greg to be cremated as soon as the body was released back to the family. Unfortunately for Kristen, that wouldn't be any time soon. Detective Agnew placed a hold on the body until she could properly investigate and determine the right course of action. There would be one more important call on the afternoon of November 8th. Russ Lowe, the man who held Michael's job before him, called the UCSD police to report that Kristen and Michael were having an affair. He thought it might be pertinent to the investigation. With that piece of information, UCSD Detective Jones determined that the case was no longer within his jurisdiction. UCSD was equipped to handle suicides, but if they were dealing with a potential homicide, it was time to call the San Diego police. By then, Detective Agnew had reached a similar conclusion. This was no suicide. It had been less than two days, and already Kristen's story was unraveling. The Friday after Greg's death, Bill Ledger, an old friend of Greg's, flew into town to comfort Kristen. He came to her apartment and ordered pizza for the two of them. Kristen wasn't sure what to do with Bill. She hadn't invited him. He had just shown up. And she really didn't want to be spending her Friday evening with him. She had plans with Michael. As they sat together on the couch, Bill had a couple of pizza slices, but Kristen didn't eat more than a few bites. She was antsy and desperately needed to do some meth. So she excused herself to the bathroom where she hid her stash. When she reappeared, Bill noticed a shift in her behavior. She was very jumpy and all over the place. At first, he chalked it up to grief. But when he asked about how she was doing, she began talking about her feelings for Michael, not about missing Greg. Most people in Kristen's shoes would know better than to confess feelings for another man four days after their husband's death. But according to researcher Samantha Fede, stimulant use is related to diminished empathy. It also affects the ability to consider different perspectives, which can have consequences for making moral and ethically sound decisions. 
Once again, drugs affected Kristen's ability to judge how her actions might be received by other people. So she barreled onward, telling Bill that Michael was coming over soon. Bill was speechless. Uncomfortable, he wrapped up the leftover pizza and left. Kristen and Michael continued to see each other, but though the two now had the freedom Kristen desperately wanted, not everything was going according to plan. She had assumed the medical examiner's office would handle Greg's toxicology testing. In fact, she had bet on it. She knew their machines weren't capable of detecting fentanyl and would therefore hide the real cause of Greg's death. Plus, Michael would be the one in charge of the whole thing. If anything went wrong, he would protect her. But instead, Michael's superiors, the lab administrator and chief medical examiner, opted to have a private lab run the tests. And finally, on November 21st, 15 days after Greg's death, those results came back. Both clonazepam and oxycodone were found in Greg's system, but so was a lethal dosage of fentanyl. The next day, November 22nd, Detective Agnew called Kristen in for an interview. Kristen didn't know the test results yet, and Agnew wanted to question her before they were leaked. Up to now, Kristen had no idea that she might be a suspect. As far as she was aware, she was just helping to wrap up the suicide investigation. But from the moment Agnew laid eyes on Kristen, she knew that she was using meth. It was obvious from the sores and scabs on her skin. Plus, she was jittery and constantly scratching her shoulder. During the interview, Kristen owned up to her affair, and she explained Greg's ultimatum. She even admitted that, yes, she had access to the drugs found in Greg's system through her job, but she swore she hadn't stolen them. As the interview came to a close, Agnew brought up the rumors that Kristen had something to do with Greg's death. Kristen flatly denied it, acting disgusted by the very idea. But she was now aware that the investigation might snowball into something bigger. Kristen wasn't the only one in the hot seat. Two days later, on November 24th, detectives interviewed Michael. He was much more guarded and careful with his answers. When questioned about his relationship with Kristen, he swore it was only an emotional affair, not sexual. With his side of the story in hand, detectives wanted to re-interrogate Kristen, but after her first round of questions, she hired a lawyer. Now she declined any further interviews. Meanwhile, Kristen's career was in trouble. By late November, she and Michael were placed on administrative leave. Less than a week later, they were both fired. Kristen for using drugs and Michael for not reporting her. Then on January 4, 2001, detectives simultaneously arrived at Kristen and Michael's homes with search warrants. At Michael's, they found a slew of letters and gifts from Kristen. They had known he was lying about the affair, but now they had evidence from his own home. At Kristen's apartment, they found meth. Despite telling Michael she would stop, she had slipped back into regular use over the past two months. 
she was arrested for being under the influence and in possession of a narcotic. She was booked and taken to jail, but her parents quickly bailed her out. Deputy District Attorney Dan Goldstein could have filed drug charges against her, but he had bigger things on his mind, like prosecuting Kristen for murder. As he and Detective Agnew built up their case against her, he figured it was better for him in the end if Kristen walked free. If she kept using meth, she would hopefully slip up and incriminate herself. Even as her world crumbled, Kristen remained resolutely optimistic. She even applied for a new job, although she neglected to mention that she'd been fired or that she was under investigation for murder. It worked. She was soon hired at TriLink Biotechnologies. She enjoyed her new job, and her co-workers loved her. She and Michael were still together, although they took care to be discreet. Life was stressful, but it was good. But then, in May, Michael returned to Australia. His mother was dying of breast cancer, and he wanted to be by her side. He and Kristen stayed in touch, but now she was all alone. And though she didn't know it, detectives were about to close in. On the morning of June 25th, 2001, Kristen woke up and got out of bed. She trudged through the apartment that seven months earlier she had shared with her husband. Now it was a mess. Her things sprawled everywhere. She stepped over clothes, crossing to her closet to get dressed. At 7 a.m., it was time for Kristen to leave. But as she locked up and left the apartment, she noticed something odd in the parking lot two detectives in an unmarked police vehicle. They were watching her. Spooked, Kristen hopped into her white Toyota and took off. She glanced in the mirror and saw the police vehicle following after her. So a mile from her house, she pulled onto Interstate 5, a major freeway. She weaved in and out of cars. Finally, when she was convinced she had lost the cops, she let out a deep breath. But still, she was concerned. Why were they following her at all? When she got to the office, she called her attorney. He was out of town, and he had some bad news for Kristen. The cops planned on arresting her later that day. Kristen rushed back to her apartment with a private investigator. She wanted to get rid of any evidence of her drug use, even though she wouldn't have time to flush the drugs out of her system. By the time they got to the building, a detective was already outside, ready to intercept her. He handcuffed Kristen on the spot, read her her Miranda rights, and informed her that she was suspected of murdering her husband. Finally, Kristen's plan had completely unraveled. Up next, Kristen makes a plea for her life. Now, back to the story. After poisoning her husband, 24-year-old Kristen Rossum tried to make his death look like a suicide. For nearly seven months, it appeared she might get away with it. However, authorities had been working behind closed doors to mount a case against her, and on June 25, 2001, they arrested her for murder. Kristen was immediately taken to Las Colinas, 
a women's detention center outside of San Diego, but instead of going into the general population of prisoners, she was assigned to an individual cell with no cellmates. Her case was too high profile for her to fraternize with the other women. But if her case seemed high profile before, it exploded the next day when the press reported her arrest. San Diego residents were enthralled by the case, which was dubbed the American Beauty Murder, thanks to the roses Kristen had scattered over Greg's body. When Kristen attended her arraignment the following week, the courtroom was packed with reporters. Everyone was intrigued by the young, petite blonde who had poisoned her husband, and the news media were intent on delivering drama. Kristen was charged with first-degree murder with special circumstances. Under California law, that made her eligible for the death penalty. And because she faced a potential death sentence, the judge ruled she wasn't eligible for bail. There was too much incentive to run. Kristen's married boyfriend, Michael Robertson, was noticeably absent from the proceedings. He was still in Australia, and he had no plans to return. And it's little wonder why. Although all the evidence against him was circumstantial, it was damning. Not only did he have drug experience from his work as a toxicologist, but it appeared he had been doing additional research on fentanyl and its effects. In his desk, investigators found 37 articles on fentanyl, plus a case write-up about a death caused by the drug that shared many similarities to Kristen's case. Deputy DA Dan Goldstein wanted to charge Michael and force him to return to the States, but without Kristen's cooperation, that wasn't possible. Kristen was adamant that she hadn't murdered Greg. Therefore, Michael couldn't be involved. So for the next three months, she remained in jail. Then on October 9th, 2001, Kristen entered the courtroom for her preliminary hearing. She wore a purple dress with her hair pulled back. Her eyes were red from crying. Deputy DA Goldstein needed to show the judge that enough evidence existed to bring Kristen to trial. He began by stating his theory. He believed that Kristen and Michael murdered Greg together to protect their careers and their relationship. Then he called witnesses. The most important was the previous lab manager from the medical examiner's office, Russ Lowe. He explained how drugs were collected from death scenes and then stored in a room that all toxicologists could access. After Greg's death, he did an audit of all the drugs in the room that were also involved in the case. He discovered that fentanyl was missing. It was a blow to Kristen's defense, but there was one silver lining. The state announced they weren't seeking the death penalty. Instead, Kristen faced life in prison without the possibility of parole. Since the death penalty was now off the table, the judge granted Kristen bail at $1.25 million. Kristen's parents managed to pull together enough money to cover it, and they picked their daughter up from jail on January 4, 2002. For the next 10 months, the two sides prepared for the trial. As they did, media outlets followed the case tirelessly. 
As a result of the relentless coverage, Kristen was notorious in Southern California, and her lawyers worried about finding unbiased jurors. They tried to have the trial move to another county, but Judge Thompson chose to wait until after jury selection to rule on the motion. If they were unable to seat a fair and impartial jury, then he would move the trial. On October 11th, the prosecution and defense settled on 12 jurors, five women and seven men. Judge Thompson decided it was a fair jury and the case would remain in San Diego. Then on October 15th, 2002, nearly two years after Greg's death, the trial began. The prosecution brought expert witnesses to testify about emails recovered from Kristen, Greg, and Michael's computers. None of Greg's emails contained mention of fentanyl or anything drug-related. He never searched for fentanyl on the internet, and his emails showed no signs of him being depressed, suicidal, or particularly interested in flowers or roses. On the other hand, Michael's computer contained an incriminating file titled K.R. The Night. Dated from November 10, 2000, it contained a chronology of the night Greg died, and there was evidence that someone had logged into Kristen's work computer while she was with her family in Claremont the day after the murder. Since she couldn't be in two places at once, they determined it was Michael signing in and deleting files for her. As this damning evidence stacked up, Kristen tried to sway the jury. Sometimes she smiled at them, perhaps trying to get them to like her. Other times she made audible objections to witness testimony, making it clear she disagreed with what was being said. Finally, the judge ordered her to stop interacting with the jurors in any way. After 11 days of the prosecution presenting its case, it was time for Kristen's defense. But most of their witnesses, like Kristen's parents and co-workers who believed she was innocent, fell apart under cross-examination. The prosecutors painted a picture of Kristen as a lying, manipulative woman who wasn't to be trusted. At the end of the trial, all Kristen's hopes rested on her lawyer's closing arguments. But as she listened to the prosecution's final rebuttal, her face fell. Up until that point, she had thought her name would be cleared. She still had plans to get a graduate degree and one day run her own lab. She had genuinely believed that this was all still possible. But now, reality was setting in. She couldn't stay in denial any longer. Though it may not have been just denial, Kristen justified her actions to herself for so long that she may have believed her own story. According to criminal psychology expert Shad Maruna, individuals tend to use post hoc rationalizations to account for what they did. As Maruna put it in an interview with Vice, there are several different techniques that criminals use to neutralize values that would otherwise prohibit them from carrying out certain acts. In Kristen's case, she convinced herself that Greg had created circumstances where she was forced to take action. And because she believed that she had no choice in the matter, she believed that she would be exonerated. 
But as she heard all the evidence against her, the gravity of her situation seemed to finally sink in. She might not get away with it after all. Before the jury was sent off, the judge gave them instructions. Although Michael Robertson wasn't officially charged in the case, the prosecution named him an unindicted co-conspirator. That meant that even if the jurors believed that Michael had actually been the one to inject Greg with fentanyl, then it was done in cooperation with Kristen as part of a conspiracy. If this was the case, Kristen could still be found guilty of the full charge of first-degree murder. The jury deliberated for three days. Then finally, on November 12, 2002, they reached their verdict. Everyone returned to the courtroom. All eyes were on 27-year-old Kristen. As Judge Thompson took his seat, Kristen trembled where she stood. Her hands and legs shook, and she steadied herself against the table as he began to read the jury's decision. Guilty of murder in the first degree. Kristen gasped, shaking her head as the tears started to flow. With that verdict, there was only one sentencing option, life in prison without the possibility of parole. Kristen was sent to the Central California Women's Facility, one of the largest women's prisons in the United States. As an inmate with no chance for parole, Kristen was initially placed in a highly restrictive unit. After a few years, she earned her way into the general population and onto yard duty. Meanwhile, her lawyers motioned for a new trial. They argued that Michael should have come back to testify on Kristen's behalf but that the unindicted co-conspirator charge had scared him into staying away. The motion was denied. Even after the trial, Michael remained in Australia. Some jurors have said that if he'd been on trial with her, they would have found him guilty too. But from the other side of the world, it was easy for him to maintain his innocence. For over a decade after the trial, it seemed that Michael was going to get away scot-free. But in 2013, reporters discovered that American authorities had filed a felony conspiracy complaint against him and issued an arrest warrant. But it seems no effort has been made to extradite him. It's likely that Michael Robertson will never return to the U.S. unless he wants to be arrested. He and Kristen stopped communicating during her trial, but since their breakup, she has yet to say an incriminating word about him. In 2016, 14 years after she was found guilty, Kristen lost her final appeal. She'll spend the rest of her life in prison with no hope of parole. Still, to this day, her story hasn't changed. Whether she's holding out for a miracle or she's convinced herself of her own delusions, Kristen Rossum says she's innocent.
Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Kristen Rossum, amongst the many sources we used, we found Poisoned Love by Caitlin Rother, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Mike Ramos, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Don't forget to check out Our Love Story, the newest Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, discover the many pathways to love, as told by the actual couples who found them. Listen to Our Love Story, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.